Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Micah. Did you think I was going to do a weird voice? You thought I did. I didn't do it. That's my normal voice. Micah's been doing his Shaggy from Scooby-Doo impression for the past two minutes. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. (laughs) Yep. Going out on the internet. That's what my life has been. Yep. (laughs) There it is. I love it. We got to shake it up a bit, you know? I'm excited that we have some cool schnaz to talk about this week. And I know this is your favorite nerd alert that you've ever done in your life. So what the heck is the nerd alert going to be this week? (laughs) God, you're like gassing me up for no good reason, and I want to find your motive. <laughs> this is going to be a fun nerd alert. You're not correct, but you're not totally wrong. I mean, you're not correct, but you're not. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Okay, you're not guys. correct, but you're also not correct. <laughs> We're talking about type and design in romance media. So that sounds very broad. Those terms all mean several things. But specifically, we're looking at the campy design that gets lumped in with romantic comedies, with romance novels, particularly contemporary romance novels. But also the 70s and 80s was like the birth of what our contemporary romance novels look like and kind of want to talk about that for a brief moment. Then we're going to talk about rom-coms and why they literally use the same type in every rom-com ever. <laughs> I, I can't tell you exactly why that is, but I can hypothesize. And how the whole romance industry gets this really specific aesthetic. And I think what's lying underneath the design choices, what the designers are psychologically trying to make the viewers of this design feel. Because I think there's definitely some emotions that are rooted in this design, whether you like it or you hate it. I hate most of it, but it's okay. (laughs) Um, It's just because Valentine's Day is on the Monday following this episode. So I don't know. I wanted to take a different lens on the whole idea of what love and design and that relationship is. And I think it's going to be really fun. I think it's going to be fun, too. And before we jump into a couple of news articles and then that good stuff, excited to announce that our next workshop is lined up. And I'm especially excited because it is with our good friend Thomas Jockin who is going to be teaching a workshop we have titled Preparing the Perfect Type Design Pitch. It's in line with our last one was with Jazz about business pricing. And this is on the other side. We've done a lot of workshops about the craft of type and designing fonts. And this is kind of the flip side that we're trying to get into. The business skills is a totally different set of skills. And Thomas is one of the best people that I have ever interacted with in terms of business and learning business from him. And so I'm really excited. It's going to be interesting difference from our normal workshop. We're kind of doing a little bit of a smaller, more affordable one. It's going to be on a weekday. It's going to be a couple hours. The tickets price is going to be a little bit lower. So hopefully that will sit well with a bunch of peeps and they'll be able to join us live and like ask questions of this Freaking business aficionado. Yeah, Thomas has so much knowledge and expertise. I mean, like we mentioned in the workshop pages, he's pitched to clients that are as big as Google and, you know, and smaller ones as well. So I worked alongside Thomas many years ago doing some custom type design. And I was very early in my design career, but was continuously amazed by how 
much he knew. And that was like three or four years ago. So I can only imagine how much he contains in his brain these days. Next week, we will have a nerd alert interviewing Thomas, talking to him about what he's going to be teaching in the workshop. And yes, it's going to be a little bit of a teaser for the workshop, but also there's so many good business tips that he is going to share with us. So definitely stay tuned for that next week. That's going to be an awesome episode and nerd alert. Yeah, and we're talking about a little bit earlier than we usually do, which I think is, you know, a hope that we can get it in front of people. So it's actually happening at the end of February. So we've got a little bit. I mean, buy a ticket now, get your spot in. Yeah, that's the fun first one is the new workshop. And then we've got a couple pieces of news, industry news to share in our links this week. Can you serve us up what the second link is? Because <laughs> I'm kind of understanding what's happening, but you have much better background. I think this popped onto my radar from Twitter, and it's Dribble, the entity that is now Dribble, has acquired FontSpring, which I know FontSpring, I know you were kind of fuzzy on FontSpring, but it's it's a marketplace for buying fonts. And they have, over the years, built up their own little empire of foundries that are listed on their platform. And if I remember right, I could be a little off, but I I remember them offering both desktop and web versions of fonts. And I think at least some of them was like embedding the fonts, like Mm. Typekit back in the day. But at least, you know, it's this giant marketplace that is one of the five big players of font marketplaces that has ever existed. So for Dribble to acquire them is kind of interesting because you were mentioning at some point in the last few years, Dribble and Creative Market joined forces, as this article says. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there were a lot of fonts on Creative Market. Creative Market had a bunch of offshoots of their stuff, too. And Dribble is kind of going in a in a big company direction. I'm interested to see where that goes. Yeah, I'm taking a look at FontSpring now because, again, this is like my first time even encountering this. But lots of <laughs> indie type foundries. It feels quite different than Creative Market, whereas Creative Market, I feel like, has a very wide range of quality fonts. I'm not saying just because I don't know the famous, like the foundries on Creative Market doesn't mean it's lesser quality, but you can tell. Creative Market takes anything in all fonts. This, things look like a little bit higher quality. I recognize a lot of these indie foundries and I could definitely spend some time hanging out here and very (laughs) curious what that means for the future of Dribbble as well. So we'll have to keep an eye out. For that. I mean, I think the difference was creative market was an open marketplace where anybody could list their stuff. Kind of mm, like my fonts. Okay. Like any anybody can get on there and make their own profile and start selling stuff. Whereas FontSpring was like, we need to partner with foundries that people know and provide the platform for them. So that, you know, that was the difference there. Do you think it's similar to like I Love Typography's new model? Yes. Great reference. I think it's exactly like that. And at the time, too, I think a lot of what Fontspring tried to do differently was similar to I Love Typography, be more fair to the foundries yeah. rather than some of the big guys that are like, hey, we're big, so we can do whatever we want. You get 10%. You know, Fontspring was like, you get 70%. And you get to make some of your own rules. And they also brought that mentality to trying to make the licensing that you were buying as a customer more clear and just less confusing and awkward. So I love that. 
It's tough. Like, I think they did a really good job over many years and obviously still are doing a good job. It's not like they're dead. (laughs) It was just they were always lesser known than Typekit or Adobe or whatever. So speaking of the big guys gobbling up the smaller guys. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Not the most elegant transition, but our next article (laughs) is titled Switching from Offler and Co.'s Cloud Typography to Commissioner by Katsas Bartsokas. So this is from a site, Nuclear Bits, and the designer has some interesting... It's a story about what happened to this person. <laughs> yeah. I think we mentioned a while ago that Hoffler was acquired by Monotype, and we were like, wonder where that's going to go. And this person is telling this story about how they had a subscription to Hoffler's cloud typography service, which, as much as I am not a fan of Hoffler's stuff, their fonts were some of the best made for screens that exist, I think, technically always crystal clear in use and their embedding service in my experience was like really reliable, really well done. Okay. Hate complimenting them, but that's the truth. So (laughs) this is telling a story about how this person had a subscription to their cloud typography service, embedding their fonts on websites and they got acquired and they were like, Ooh, that's not a good sign. What's going to go wrong here. And then a few days later or whatever, they got an email saying their subscription had ended. And they were like, what? And their fonts stopped working on their website. And they were like, what? And so they logged into their account. And the only option was to start a new subscription for double the price that it was before. They tried to email. And basically, the only response was, yeah, we updated our pricing. Sorry, we can't offer you the old pricing. Please understand. (laughs) And it was like, what? That's awful. That's horrible. Yeah. The email that says, we ask for your understanding, that is... Like understanding, you're a huge, huge company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and whatever, they can do what they want to do. They own cloud.typography, but just like kind of gross ill will they're spreading by just shocking everybody with like a new tag for people that have been using this in their design and now have to kind of reconfigure. So, I mean, at the end of the day, Nuclear Bits is now using Commissioner, a family by Kotsa Spartsokis, and it looks like it's an open source font. So that's awesome and very cool. Which, to be honest, I, I like that message at the end in a way because, you know, we've been saying that for a long time. While embedding services are wonderful and convenient, and I often use them myself, something could happen. <laughs> and the only way that you can be sure that your fonts are going to work definitely no matter what is if you are using an open source one or you buy something where you are allowed to embed it on your own, on your own site and nobody can take that away. Yeah, definitely like lessons learned and interesting. This is like the first time I've heard of someone's experience with Hoffler fonts under the monotype umbrella. So that's the fun industry news. Yeah, this is very technical industry news that we had this week. But uh, now we get to transition into the fun nerd alert. Yeah, I kind of have an article that transitions us from type design funness to the nerd alert. Perfect. This article is from AIGA's Ion Design. I love it. I'll never stop loving it. Anyways, (laughs) the article is titled, The Art of the Movie Poster in the Age of Netflix. 
From its offices in a Hollywood movie lot, Percival and Associates designs the key art for some of the most recognizable movies and TV shows, and they're all smaller than a postage stamp. Okay, so that was a long, long byline, and okay. <laughs> it's basically about this movie poster design studio, or it's sometimes called key art, that are designing really provocative movie posters of our time. There's a lovely showcase in this article of posters like Moonrise Kingdom and Fargo, a ghost story, this like horror movie raw, and they all have like just a very, very distinct visual language. And it shows off a little bit about the history of this company, Percival and Associates, and a little bit of their process, talking about how a lot of their posters are using things like avant-garde graphic design, fashion photography, and experimental typography to make them one step above the really classic overdone tropes of the movie poster, whether that's like the rom-com where the couple is back-to-back and like looking at the camera or the Fast and Furious action movie look of like the black and white plus like pops of red and fire. They talk about some of the cliches that existed in the past and how this one company is really elevating and reconsidering the art form of movie posters and It's like really enticing and there's just a great show off of imagery and type. And I mean, Mike, I know you love some good movie poster art, so I'm sure you're also intrigued. Yeah, totally. I was a little thrown off because when they were, when it said age of Netflix, I thought that this was going to be an article about the behind the scenes of how Netflix has like the AB test posters and images and they, yeah. you know, for, for any given show, they have a dozen or two dozen variations and use their machine learning to see which ones might appeal to you as opposed to your neighbor. And I thought that's what this was going to be about. And then we got into it and it was a lot more basic of like, oh, here's a company who's being creative with posters, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's essentially like, yeah, there are there are a lot of tropes and we've gotten into like, a lot of patterns where you see this style of movie poster and you know what it's going to be, but it could be more creative than that. A lot of these designs like remind me what I love on like book cover design too. It's like, how do we distill yeah. a story into like an enticing image? It's not really about functionality. It's really about grabbing people's attention and making them curious about a whole, what, hour and a half commitment by one image. Mm-hmm. And that's a movie. I mean, for a TV show, it's even longer. They talk about the American Horror Story poster they've done. I also think it's interesting. They do mention Netflix and making art the size of a postage stamp because so much of the movie key art that we experience day to day is like not necessarily walking past movie posters every day, especially since the pandemic started. I was like literally in the subway the other day being like, I remember I used to know so much more about pop culture because I was surrounded by subway ads. Whereas these days, we're not going out as much. We're looking at our streaming services and that's how we figure out what we want to watch. That's what we scroll through. And sometimes, yes, those images might be the size of a postage stamp. And I think rethinking things to be like, okay, this might not be a billboard size, but if this was on your cell phone, would you still stop and look at it and want to know more? That's like an interesting prompt. And and that's happening throughout so many industries. We've talked about how book designers have to think about their book covers being the size of a postage champ on an Amazon website because they have to do thumbnails. So I think it's almost even more important that you convey 
a really good design in that one split second because people are paying less and less attention to you. So getting able to grab someone's attention by a really unique visual moment, that's pretty powerful. I now wonder, this is a, a tiny tangent, I promise, but I wonder, I remember being in art school and them kind of trying to teach us the art of logo design and saying this has to work big, it has to work small, it has to work black and white, it has to work in color. Here's all these areas where this one design has to somehow work. I wonder now if in art school they teach, like you talking about book covers in that way opened my eyes to it, and now I totally see the exact parallel with these movie posters. I wonder if that's just part of digital design classes now is... Or I mean, I'm sure it depends on the teacher in the class, but I wonder how much that comes up now in art school of somebody's going to be looking at this on a screen that is this Mm -hmm. big in front of you and it's going to be next to a dozen other ones. I wonder if that's part of a lot of teachers curriculum at this point. If not, and you're a teacher, think about it. Or let us know. I'm curious. Is that something that are we teaching students to be that limited in that way during their like young experimental years? I don't know. It's interesting. You think that's limited? A little bit. I do think it is a limitation. Fair enough. Yeah. But I feel limitation reads creativity. You love a good limitation. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, movie posters are cool. And this is transitioning into your fantastic nerd alert, which is about romance. Yes, it's nerd alert time. I'm excited. Okay, so sometimes my nerd alerts are super research heavy, kind of like the death metal one. This one's more of a Olivia gives a lot of hot takes type of nerd alert. (laughs) So can't wait. (laughs) There might be some unpopular opinions. There might be some popular opinions, but I do think that you'll stop and think about what's kind of around you during this time when so much freaking romance media is being pushed. It's like, I go on Hulu and it's like, things to watch for Valentine's Day with your boyfriend, things to watch if you're single, books to do this, books to do that. And I'm like, oh my God, this world we live in. So romance type, let's get started. I kind of want to start with something that is an easy cliche for people to kind of blow up, imagine in their mind. Romance novels, typically, in the 70s and 80s tradition, were these novels that were kind of smaller than our regular trade paperbacks. And I want you to imagine a Fabio model with his hair blowing in the wind and like another woman with like super voluptuous breasts in some silk gown and they're leaning over each other and there's some really old school lettering type that's like hot and fearless. Two lovers, three nights, the Nordic sky above them. This is what I used to imagine romance novels to be. Mm. Things have really changed since then, but those type of covers were called clinch covers. And it's literally because they were describing an embracing couple on the front of a romance novel. They were ridiculed so much because If someone saw you reading this novel, they knew you were reading something like erotic and really sexy. And it was like the 70s and 80s. That was definitely super taboo. But I think it's really interesting that there was a whole aesthetic around that. And I think we could go into that in another nerd alert. But can I just interject and say now that I I had no idea that term existed and that's cool because just Googling that brings me to a, a bunch of good examples of what this is. And I'm like, oh, yeah, my, my nana used to read these. And I have since found there's a resurgence of this, which maybe didn't come up in your research, in app form on the App what? Store. 
Tell me okay, more. Okay, I'm, I'm glad that you're excited about this. There's like a bunch of apps where it's like choose your own romance or erotic novel. Whoa. There's covers that look like clinch cover, like digital versions. They made it in Photoshop, which you can tell, you know, there's kind of like a little bit uh-huh. of cheesiness to the styling of the type and whatnot. But it's the same pattern. And it's a thing where, like, you get to pick out your character and make decisions for your character. And it's like one of those branching stories. This is very interesting. I've looked into it in terms of researching apps that make money on the App Store. And they make buckets of money because it's like you have to buy tokens or diamonds or something to make premium decisions or whatever. And then they're always offering these deals of like, here's $10 for a hundred diamonds or whatever. I'm making this up, but that then turns into this system where like you're holding the diamonds and have already given away the money. And so you just want to use the tokens, diamonds, whatever I'm mixing up my terminology, but you know, and so there's this very profitable app resurgence of these clinch novels or clinch cover novel. I don't know how you could say it, but I just wanted to throw that in. It's interesting that even immediately after you looked up what clinch covers were, that vernacular is really, really stuck in this pre-existing notion of something romantic or or sexy or erotic or whatever. That's pretty powerful, I think, in its own right for a style that was ridiculed for so many decades. I'm so interested to see like how it gets appropriated today or re-examined today or maybe flipped on its head. But even just being appropriated for something very similar in an app form, this is very interesting. I Mm. like it. So you mentioned there's a lot of money to be made there. I think we cannot discount the fact that the romance novel industry is a billion dollar industry. I had no idea. People talk about romance novels, again, as like what your Nana read before she went to bed. Like I'm pretty sure my dad talked about his grandma doing the exact same thing. So it's an industry that's been alive for decades. And I wanted to kind of talk about where we are today with the romance novel industry. We are no longer having these clinch covers. Romance novels in general in the past decades had really shifting aesthetics. You can Google it to find out. I want to particularly talk about this aesthetic that is really popular right now with modern romance novels. So I'm not talking about fantasy or there's so many subgenres. I'm talking about the most popular contemporary romance novels. They use these really boldly colored illustrated covers with hand lettering and it is all super one note. We included an article by Refinery29 about the covers in the newsletter this week if you kind of want to see what I'm talking about. But I hate this aesthetic. I'm just going to say it. I really don't like it. (laughs) That's funny. I'm surprised that you don't like it. I really keep going. I think I don't like it because it's so overly done. Maybe if I saw a cover every once in a while or so that had this just really, really flat graphic design, like no defining features on the figures that are illustrated in this, just so basic, like these, there's always like a motif or something from the book that gets put onto the cover. Everyone's silhouetted. It's literally the same style. And then the hand lettering really varies. There's some excellent hand lettering. There's a lot of really terrible hand lettering. Google contemporary romance novels. It'll be everything I hate about contemporary hand lettering. They use script fonts and they track them out. They put them on curves. They make them really illegible with bouncing baselines. I see these covers and I literally don't want to read the novel. And it's not just because of aesthetics (laughs) reasons. It's because, well, it's because it feels like the aesthetic is trying to dumb down the content of the novel. Mm. I would like to go on record and say I would probably read more romance novels 
if their covers didn't turn me off so much. Like everything for the past like four years has been this like really flat illustrated covers. And I think it's like just dragging down the genre into something that is really simple and makes me think the books can be kind of cheesy and characters doing unrealistic things. Well, yes, romance novels can be cheesy, but the kind of amazing thing about romance novels and why it's such a huge industry, it's driven a lot by women. There's a lot of female-led plots and narratives, and there's a huge amount of diversity that's actually growing in the genre too. So I'm here for the genre. I'm not here for these super flat, poppy colors that don't really make sense together necessarily, really feminine hand lettering. I just think that just goes into a bunch of the tropes of gendered script and gendered typography that we've talked about that I don't think appeals to me at all or a lot of women that otherwise maybe would be reading romance novels. I don't know. So this is like a little bit of a rant, but I just think there's a huge lack of artistry in this modern contemporary romance cover world and think about other contemporary literary fiction maybe the romance industry thinks it's pretentious maybe they think it's pretentious to have like more artistically done covers but I think there's some like really good covers out there by not Kim or Rodrigo Corral like we all have our favorites and I just don't understand why the romance genre can't get up to speed I feel like it's partly because They've like grown into this trope. A lot of times I hear this thing where sales in the publishing world will be like, this book sold really well. Now let's make every single cover look like this book because I think that's why this book sold well. That's like where the trends are leading in so many ways. So that was my large rant on contemporary romance novels. You're probably looking at them. What are your thoughts? Well, you gave me an interesting list to look at where they do literally look all the same. And I think that's kind of interesting because last night we were chatting off topic about Wes Anderson and mm-hmm. a lot of them feel like if Wes Anderson made like a hand-drawn movie it would look like this interesting that's my first aesthetic thought about it I don't think Wes Anderson feels overly cutesy there's a very charming aspect to him I'm not charmed by any of these kinds of covers <laughs> well I guess maybe to clarify I'm I'm saying I think a lot of it feels like it's trying to mimic Wes Anderson. Mm, okay. Trying to be charming by stealing some of those aesthetic choices. But at the same time, you're right, dumbing it down. Like, let's give you the plot and illustration on the cover so that you know what you're buying. And I have to imagine, like you were saying, a ton of this has to be publishers just wanting a book to sell. Mm-hmm. And they're like, look, all these books are kind of the same. They're a romance. They're like Hallmark movies, right? Like it's the literary version of Hallmark yes. movies. So let's just have a formula, churn them out. And over the course of the industry, we will make all our money rather than one book being a particular hit. That's my guess. Yeah. My issue is that like, like I have to imagine they're all not Hallmark the Hallmark movie books like I have to imagine some have are not like totally cheesy or like have more complex discussions in them or like have more complex issues than the really really basic stuff that's out there like I'd like to think that that would be the case and even if they were even if they were Hallmark movie cheesy we do not all have to look the same okay this is getting a little (laughs) aggressive on my end it's not I think a you're allowed to have opinions about it (laughs) (laughs) And B, you're allowed to talk about it. And I do think it's interesting because I'm now browsing around our favorite bookstore, bookshop.org. 
and looking at a bunch of collections that they've put together. And it's interesting how you sent me one that were all this like flat color Futuro with handwriting <laughs> novels. Yep. Yep. And then there's another one that I found randomly that are all like authors that are people of color, but are still like their romance picks. Like here's our favorites. And it's like similar, but different. <laughs> like it's <laughs> right. And I think that's, that's maybe a good example of what you're talking about where it's like, why do they all have to be this way? I don't exactly. Know. If we're diversifying the voices that are even in this industry way more than ever before, we're di- that means we're diversifying the stories. That means that we don't have to go with the same aesthetic every time. I really wonder what your version of these covers would look like, though. Would alternatives be? That's true, and I don't know. I think there's a little bit more going on in the rom-com movie world, which I guess is where I'll segue. And I actually think that I don't know what i do for those novels, but we can start getting cues of how things can differentiate themselves if we start to look at like how romantic movies mostly all use the same aesthetic, but there are some that have found nuggets that actually really work. So moving to the rom-com world of romance media, again, very similar tropes. They just love some stacked skinny sands. They love a good stacked skinny sands. <laughs> Doesn't matter how long or short the words are, they will stack them. They will change the point size of the long words to make them fit perfectly on top of the short words. <laughs> you, mean, you mean when you're like, you've got like a short word and then a long word and then a short word or like where you make it a full square by changing the justification or the font size or something. Yes. Like I'm looking at the poster for the spectacular now and the spectacular is really small. And now it's like huge. Then there's examples like crazy, stupid love where things are kind of the same length, but yeah. So look at crazy, stupid love, crazy, rich Asians, the spectacular now sleeping with other people, all contemporary rom-coms, all the same type. They have this like Futura like type in most of them. That is stacked. It's super okay. It's super not exciting. <laughs> Rom-coms also love to do like the really thick sans serif with the really thin sans serif. So you can think about mm-hmm. Runaway Bride maybe is the most like recognizable logo of that. Or I was on Netflix and just like screenshotted a ton. If you go to the romance section in Netflix, there's a lot to look at. This isn't a similar issue with the romance novels where it's like, oh, that rom-com sold or that romance movie like did really well. Let's just continue doing that because that's like a vernacular people recognize. And it looks like a movie where maybe you don't have to think too hard and is like lightly entertaining and has some good plots in it. I think it's just an example, this and romance novels of contemporary versions that like Graphic designers have this power to use and choose typography, and I feel like it's both of those things. Like, the choosing of typography is literally not something that is being actively thought of in these genres, and the using of typography is also, honestly, like, a sans serif just stacked? That's not super thoughtful in so many of these instances. And it's totally because they're like, make it easy, make it simple. Maybe it's because no one's ever looking at movie posters the way that they used to. I think I was telling Micah, this is like, this conversation is a good foil to the Percival and Associates posters that we talked about earlier in the episode that were like really engaging and really evocative. Like these are like opposite of evocative. But you know what? 
honestly, I can't do anything about it. And maybe (laughs) I'm not seeing the bright side of this is that it's an easy communicator for a movie to say, I don't take myself that seriously. Enjoy me for some good laughs. Enjoy me for some cute romance. And it's like immediately will convey that whether or not it's exactly hitting that note on the scale. But like, I also wonder, I feel like rom-coms are diversifying their stories and narratives and et cetera. And we're just going to still stick with the same thing we've been doing for the past 10 years. Okay. I don't know. I think this is turning into a little bit of a bigger conversation of, is that a valuable thing to follow this trend and see You know, when you're looking at a sea of movie posters of what you want to watch or buy a ticket for, you kind of have an idea of what you're walking into and paying for, essentially. Mm -hmm. So are you going to want something that's reliable (laughs) or are you going to want something that's evocative? And I feel like that conversation bleeds into maybe not for a type podcast necessarily, but I've heard this conversation in why the heck are Hollywood studios constantly making sequels? Why... Do Marvel movies do so well and it's kind of like taking over all of the movies that exist at this point. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the argument for it is if we're going to be spending our hard earned money and hard earned free time on something, we were like voting with our dollars, essentially, which either dollars for a movie ticket or watch time on Netflix, which we're paying for. Right. And the studies are showing that people don't want to invest in something they don't know if it's going to be good. The majority of people would rather invest in something they know is going to be good. From a creative standpoint, is that exploration and pushing genres of design not so great? From a self-soothing human standpoint, I kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I like the devil's advocate point of view here. I appreciate that. <laughs> that also just reminds, as I'm saying this, that reminds me of some TikTok that I watched recently where they were like, oh, yeah, devil's advocate. Why does the devil need an advocate? <laughs> oh, my <God. laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. But, yeah, there's it's two sides of the same coin, right? Like it's it's good in one perspective and, and bad in another perspective. So I don't know. I have no answers. Yeah, I also picked movies for the the movie posters I was looking at. You know, The Spectacular Now, Crazy Rich Asians, Sleeping with Other People, Crazy Stupid Love. Those are all romance movies that I actually like thoroughly enjoy. I will Mm. say that. And I just feel like love such a good one, right? I love them all for different reasons, and I don't think they're at all like the same story either. Like Sleeping with Other People is a lot more of kind of like a slow burn rom com than Crazy Rich Asians, which is like really really over. Like why the crazy rich asians using a immensely boring font like that movie is outrageous (laughs) like it's crazy you're literally shocked by the opulence in every scene i just (sighs) i actually never saw that one okay but you should watch okay my version of this is about time you ever watched that romance movie no but i saw the screenshot on netflix it's the skinny sands with the fat sands but people love that movie. yeah it's one of my favorite romantic movies And it's a weird twist. I'm not giving anything away. They tell this in the teaser about a man who can time travel Mm -hmm. and how he like uses that in in his love life with this woman that he is in love with. Like it's a very wholesome and beautiful and weird take on how time travel could affect you personally rather than like go kill Hitler. 
such a creative idea. The acting is phenomenal. You just care so much about the characters and it's so interesting and, and unusual. And it's just marketed as like a boring everyday romance movie. And I'm like, man, but it's different. Right? So I kind of get it. I kind of get it. Yeah. And it just lumps a whole genre into like one one noted design. And I feel like design should be advocates for the story. I just don't think these designs, whether it's these romance covers or whether it's these rom-coms like this design is not advocating for a story but it's trying to manipulate viewers into paying attention to it because they're targeting a very specific subset of viewers that want a romantic story it's funny because at the end of the day it's not really about the hating the sans serif or hating the flat colored covers with the stupid illustrations okay they're fine like whatever it's not about hating that it's just like hating that the design is just trying to appeal to who the salespeople think is going to want to read this book and they're just forfeiting design in favor of what they think they know i don't think we've ever talked about it on a nerd alert but i think we should do a nerd alert kind of as a follow-up to this one like researching the results from Netflix's A-B testing. Because I know that they try different versions of posters. Yes. One will be one cliche, one will be a second cliche, one will be totally weird. And they literally put it in front of hundreds of thousands of users and see who clicks what. And in the context of what else are they clicking to. And so like, we we should dive into that at some point. Yes. That could be an interesting follow-up. Okay. I need to cut myself off. I had more, but I, yeah, I got to – we're, we're – We talked plenty. <laughs> this was fun. This was good. I thought this was really cool. Good. I'm so glad you got to chime in and help me process my thoughts and feelings. <laughs> yeah. This, this has been a long one. It's been fun. Hopefully people enjoyed this conversation. And if you have thoughts, we got an email and a Twitter and an Instagram that you could share your thoughts because we're always curious – And in the meantime, check out that darn workshop. And that's all I got. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Happy Valentine's Day, I guess, everyone. Right. (laughs) Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do.